Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. Welcome back to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who live self-actualized lives and find out how they did it and how they still do it and what can we learn from them. What's the true meaning of success? What's the true meaning of fulfillment? Is it money? Is it career? Is it how you feel inside? Is it your creativity? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? What does it mean to you? So we have the amazing, by any standards, Jane Pike with us tonight, who is jolly interesting. Why is Jane Pike jolly interesting? Well, Jane Pike was an early pioneer of the online membership equestrian learn to train your horse or learn to ride better type stuff that came out a few years ago on the internet. And many, many, many people have done this. I myself have signed up for quite a few of these things because, hey, it's always good to learn something. And I know some people who certainly made money at it. I don't know many people who have managed to both be economically successful at it and also genuinely help people out and also do it from a perspective that is neurological, showing people how to really access what's in their bodies, the sort of wisdom of the nervous system in a way that goes far transcends horses. She's also a poet, but she don't know it, but you will soon know it because there'll be something published quite soon. And she's sort of all around awesome. And she very definitely lives life on her own terms down there on the South Island of New Zealand, where she's not traveling all over the world. And so I feel that we could tap into some Jane Pike wisdom about how do you do something like this? How do you become financially, creatively independent like this and live in this extraordinary place and help people out all over the world and still sort of remain cool. So um, without further ado, welcome Jane Pike. Thank you. That was a bit of, that was the loveliest introduction I've ever, ever had. And the, the stay cool bit is questionable, but we'll see how we well, roll. It's, it's, it's nothing but the truth. And, and there are many people who will be listening right now who are followers of Jane Pike. Jane Pike has a website called confidentrider.com. And dot a, online. Dot com, dot online. Sorry, good Lord. I no, apologize. that's all right. Find the early pioneers and we'll on just buy all the names. Yeah, yeah. I'll say it three yeah. times because if what, what I said three times is true. Confidentrider.online, confidentrider.online, confidentrider.online. And her Joyride program has thousands of people around the world. And I'm always running into people who go, oh, I'm a Jane Pike playing girl. So let's find out why they are. So Jane Pike, who are you? Who am I? In what sense? In what sense shall we begin the who, I, who are you conversation? Well, you could begin it in the physical sense, as in, I am this person who lives here and does this. You could begin yes. it in the esoteric sense of, I was once this person who lived there 
and did that, but then returned to source and came back as a, as a flea and then went through my reincarnation cycle. Or you could just tell us who you are. Yeah, well, I, I am Jane. I'm Jane. Thank you for having me here. At the moment, I lived in a little corner of the South Island of New Zealand, and I wasn't born here originally. I was born in Australia. But my travels took me to New Zealand when I was in my late teens, actually, which is kind of a funny story because one of my best friends from school, Claire, we wanted to travel after we'd done a period of study and we wanted to go to Asia and we went to the travel agent and said, this is where we want to go. And they were like, oh, well, that's holiday time. It's all booked out. And she said, but what about New Zealand? And both of us went, oh, New Zealand, why would we want to go there? It's just like Australia. <laughs> that was kind of our thought at the time in our ignorant Australian mindset. But then because we both wanted to get out of the country, we were like, oh, okay, let's go. And so we hired a little car and drove around the South Island of New Zealand for two weeks. And I instantly fell in love with it. And then we were we decided at that point that after the next semester of university that we would come back and do a longer stint over the summer. And Claire pulled out on that longer stint and I decided to come by myself and then I just didn't go home, basically. So that this was, was in my your late teens. And now yeah. then you you at this point, you know, we're fast forwarding to your current career. So you've got this hyper-successful online business doing equestrianism and the nervous system, the human nervous system. I presume you weren't doing that in your early teens, in your late teens, but no. what was the groundwork? What were you doing then that's led to, that led to now? Oh my goodness. That's a, like a lot of territory, a lot of territory to cover. I think so late, when I think about it, late teens is probably an inaccurate, it would have been very early twenties. I'm, I'm my, I'm time morphing now in my mind, but what led to it, a period of <laughs> massive indecision and not knowing what to do with my life for like 10 years probably but I my start point was I was very academic at school and I was one of those people that had a very clear idea of what I was going to do with my life I was like right I'm going to tick all of these boxes and I'm going to come out of school and I got a scholarship to Sydney University for communications law and I knew that at that point I had to you get a specific Kylie Minogue's lawyer. It's to get a specific score at school. And so my whole like life literally was oriented around study and getting this score that I needed to get to get into the course that I wanted. And they were very selective. It was like at that stage, the way that the school system worked, you took you took your best five subjects out of like a series of subjects that you were doing. And each of those subjects had a score out of 20. And I had to get over 96 out of 100 overall to get the scholarship. And so that's what happened. And so, so I, got into, <laughs> I got into this degree, this double degree, and I, I went from a, a little town in rural Tasmania at that point to, to the centre of Sydney. And I had like an apartment and it was like a, a complete shock to the nervous system. And I just remember sitting there a few weeks in thinking, what am I doing here? I was kind of like desperately homesick. And I also had this very clear, I don't know if you'd call it vision, but just sense of what the end of that particular period of study would most probably look like, which is me sitting in an office, sorting through paperwork, 
climbing my way up this chain of like whatever it is I need to climb up to get to whatever position that I wanted to be. And I just thought, I just, this is just not going to make me happy. I was like, this is, this is not going to make me happy. How long did it take you to make, to come to that realization? About four weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And so I remember pleading with my parents. Yeah. I remember pleading with my parents and being like, can I just, I just want to come home. And they were like, stay till the end of this, you know, period, get it sorted, go and see the counselor. We think you're just homesick and all of these things. And in the end, I had like a little Mitsubishi Colt, which was like a little red smarty car that was probably questionably roadworthy. And I just packed it up to the ceiling and drove three states across Australia. <laughs> and that was the end of, of that particular moment in my life and also the end of clarity for what I was going to do. And then it just became like a hodgepodge for the next sort of but decade. But you now, you've got, you've got nervous system expertise, which we're going to dive into because if you're listening... You do want to know some of the things that Jane knows about your nervous system. They are useful. Mm-hmm. And horses. So where did the horses come in? So my mum was and is a passionate horsewoman. And I had horses from the moment that I was born. She had horses. And I think it was a huge convenience that I happened to be interested in what she was into. Because I think if I hadn't been, I, I, I think I just would have had no option. <laughs> basically so it was just kind of handy and she had a a horse called icon who was a a arab cross something something cross something something that was she had him since she was he was a two-year-old and he he actually only relatively recently passed away in his 40s so she had him literally his whole life and she used to ride all of the time and i've got photos of me plonked up on on icon from a very early age and then When I was about five, my dad said to me, come with me. You're going to come, come, we're going to go for a walk. And the the area that we lived, there was a a road that led up to like the end of a a bush track or a clearing. And mum rode this pony from a friend's house that instantly she had got him from through the clearing. And that was Captain, who was going to be my, who was my pony basically. And he was rescued out of a bramble bush on the side of the road in kind of slightly dilapidated state and had been brought back to health. And now I had this like black, wild maned, unidentified breeding pony that was, that was mine. And we, we were very fortunate at the time that the area that we were in was surrounded by farmland. And the farmer also bred riding ponies on the side. And so he was horse, horse friendly and let us ride over all his paddocks, which was sort of about 500 acres and very like hill, massive, you know, hills and bush and rivers and all of those sorts of things. So I just used to take off on captain and like ride around the the paddocks. And what was really glorious about it looking back was my lack of just self-consciousness about that experience because he was like a very wild looking pony, but I used to take him in all the competitions with all the fancy ponies that were all plaited up. And I had no clue that I was like completely inappropriate for that setting. I'd just be like tantering around, like, and both of our hair would be going all over the place. And all my, you know, I just didn't have the didn't have the gear. I was the opposite of all the gear and no idea. I was like, no gear and no idea. <laughs> But it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. And mum used to come riding as well. With did me, at some obviously. point the gear and the ideas come together? So did you and, and mum sort of get the showing thing together and then end up sort of killing it? Yeah. Those at a certain point? And yeah. My how? sister. How did, how did that happen? 
my sister as well. Well, I, I don't know. I think that like it really is this unclear in my mind about what made that decision come for my mum and dad. But they were both competitive runners. And so that's how they met. My mum was one of the first was was the first women woman to run competitively in Australia. She came over on like the two dollar ticket from the UK. And there were no races for women at that point. So she started running with the men and she beat them. And they were very put out about that, which created some women's races in Australia. And so she was running the five and 10,000 meters and my dad was a sprinter. And so they met and hit it off, obviously. And I think that why I mentioned that was because they had like a competitive streak in them that maybe when I was flying around with like Maine flying in the wind and they saw these other people and they saw how into it I was, they thought, maybe there would be a possibility for me to take it a little bit further. And so, or maybe they just couldn't stand it and they wanted to do better. And so they bought me, they bought me a pony called Minnie, who was a riding pony and she was amazing actually. And I was just, I just remember being shocked because I went from like this little bush pony to like this quite fancy little other pony who had lots of issues at the time it's so funny retrospectively looking back where you know like she was very cold backed and had issues that I would now treat from, from a variety of perspectives like body work those who, who are not horsey cold back means you're likely to get back fucked off when you yeah so I used to like leap on and then there would be like a moment where you'd go around the arena like two or three times and that was just standard like and my parents never used to think anything of it which is so weird because if I put my child on a pony like that they wouldn't but it was just like, oh yeah, she's fine. You just need to sort of get through that first part. So that's what we did. And she progressively got better and better. She was quite young when I got her. And so we had quite a successful showing career together. And and I had sort of lots of other horses in between that were part of what I just did my whole life. I just used to get up before school and ride and I rode after school and I mucked out stables and did the whole works. And that was my life pretty much. Yeah. So you, you're in an obsessive, perfectionist, competitive, horsey family. You are out there showing. and that, That's a strong label, Rupert. The strong labels. <laughs> and then you decide to go off to university to become Carly Minogue's lawyer. Decide yeah. that that might be. I actually wanted to be a journalist. That okay. was my, my true passion, but they offered like a double degree. And so okay. it was like, oh, why not? Like that was just my thought. Why not? Yeah. Then four weeks into that out of Tasmania, you decide, no, this is awful. I need to get back home. And then you say that was the end of clarity. So knowing you now, you are, you seem pretty clear. I see mm -hmm. you mentoring people on how to run businesses, I see you mentoring people on how to do online stuff. I see you mentoring people on how to get their nervous systems together and so on. So w if you say that non-clarity hit you, how long did it hit you for and where did it lead you? 20 years. Okay. That's good. Like, that's, that's a good minimum. minimum no, of. no, not quite that long, but I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm not joking. We get to my uh, 20 years. It's sort of, yeah. 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 Oh, only not 20 years. Yeah. You know, it's like clarity is an interesting word, isn't it? Because I had been trained into an expectation of what I should do when I left school and a smart person who does well at school, you know, this is sort of the labels that I did well at school because I was so afraid of not doing well, you know, from the point of like letting people down or getting in, it wasn't motivated from a place of like, 
wow, learning's amazing. Let's like make the most of this. It was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to disappoint someone. And yeah. if I, if I, I don't want to disappoint someone, I don't want to get in trouble. I, I, I don't know I that I learned. That's a lot of us, as, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that I learned as much as I really was good at playing the game. I'm like, okay, I know what you need for this exam and I will learn exactly what you need. I will predict the questions. And when I get there, I will spew out everything I know and that will get me a perfect score, which is true. Like I, I was, I was smart in that I could decipher what was required of me and I could predict it and, and I gave it to them. It's, it's different from learning, <laughs> you know, because now I couldn't necessarily think back to what it is that I learned and, and tell you with passion. I just knew that in this particular area of study, like history or English or that this is probably the question that they're going to ask me based on what we've studied or one of these. And so literally if I write the essay beforehand and I memorize it, I can change the introduction and I can change the conclusion around the question and I will just give you what you want to hear. And that's what I did. And so I think that that brought me success at school. And so when I stepped outside of that and all of a sudden the framework that was comfortable to me, which was here are my friends, here is this institution, here is this place that I know what the rules are. And I notice, you know, the wider world. I notice it actually for the first time, like, well, shit, this is actually my life. This isn't like getting to the next stage of like 17 or 18. This is like where I'm supposed to sit when I'm 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. Like, and is that what I want? I think I've always had that little spark in me thinking about that. And I just it rebelled at the at that moment and and then it threw me into a huge amount of conclusion confusion because I became somewhat of the joke and this was a bit of a ego bruise because but it, I was the person that if my friends were like oh who's gonna make it or who's gonna do the thing they'd be like oh Jane Jane will do it like she's she'll do it and then all of a sudden I was the one flunking out of university and I was the one trying a million different things and going to these crazy places and it became a thing of like oh Jane's doing another thing or Jane's like oh Jane's doing this now and it was it was very challenging for me to take I'm sure in some ways they meant it lovingly and, and that or they didn't mean anything by it but for me who had created a lot of my identity I think and value around academic success it was a lot. Like I, I really was wobbling inside with that and did wobble for the next sort of 10 years, even though retrospectively I did a lot of stuff which people would think was very cool. And I think on reflection, I, I can see how it was. I, I know at the time I probably didn't get the most out of it because I just really struggled with who I was at that point and where it was going. So talk us through these wilderness years. We know that at a certain point you had a look at New Zealand and have ended up there, but there's more. So, 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 so you, you, you come back from Tasmania, you're thinking, oh God, what do I do? Yeah. My identity has been wrong. What happens? Where do you go? Yeah. I just rack up some student debt, like trying lots of different things that I never finish and have some kind of like financial obligation to, which was, you know, as an always adult, fun. I wouldn't do that. Always but at the good, time, it just didn't really occur to me. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't really occur to me that that was going to be a thing. 
Um, and I did study health science and got into sort of naturopathy and herbal medicine as part of that, which was the beginnings, I think, of, of leading to where it is that I am now. What but, led you from, from being journalist and wanting to be huge accident, Kylie Minogue's lawyer, to herbs and herbology? I, I, had you yeah, always I had a bit of a yen that way? Or? Well, I think so. I think so. And there was a few kind of key incidents in here, which now, again, retrospectively, I see that have fed into what it is that I'm doing now. So one of the big life changes at that point was that my parents moved from where we'd always lived for my like duration of sort of 10 to 19 to Victoria, which is in, on mainland Australia. So we'd lived in Tasmania up until that point. And I moved over as well. I, I lived on a different property to them with my horses and just had a really, really hard time with like isolation and and kind of venturing out into the adult world in a way that perhaps wasn't the most ideal transition in that I moved to somewhere where I didn't know anyone, where I was very isolated with the horses. My parents were coming six months later, so my family wasn't there yet. And it was just like this, I think health-wise, that really started to knock me around. And again, looking back, I don't know why that was a supported decision. But again, it's just a different time, isn't it, when you just do different things than what it is you do for your own kids now. But the reason that this is relevant is because at that stage, I was really suffering health-wise. I had like a lot of different back issues, which I'd had my entire teens, like to the point where my back would just burn and I couldn't escape the pain that I was feeling in my back. And I had a lot of anxiety. There was That was definitely a feature. I would say I was a very imbalanced human at that moment in time for a few different reasons that fed in. And so I started to seek out different solutions to my own wellness. And at one point, one of those solutions was to, I went to a, a fair, like a wellness fair and saw a chiropractor there who like got out all of the machines and like read the amount of tension that was in my system and, and put me on like this prescription of like ridiculous amounts of sessions with him. And he popped a vertebrae, popped a vertebrae, popped a disc in my back with his adjustment. And so, yeah, so that was, so then I, I became even more incapacitated with my own stuff at that point. And so that led me, like I said, into being interested in different alternative therapies. And I was quite stoic at that point in time. And I didn't want to take, really know why, but I didn't want to take traditional pain medication or painkillers. And, and so I just, I think, well, when I say I don't know why, like I, I had seen people in my family, you know, struggle with different medications for, for different reasons. And I guess that part of me was like very much not wanting to be in that same ilk. So that led me on the health science route, route and then that led me further down wanting to study yoga at a different period of time and breath work and all of these things. And, and that was a, definitely a huge part of the next sort of 10 years that followed after that. So you just said yoga and breath work. And wellness. So, okay, you're you're looking for solutions for your back. Yeah, you're there in Victoria, wondering what to do. You've got the family horses, is that right? On a family property, but you're supposed to kind of look after people. You don't know anybody, and now you've got a bad back, which isn't helpful, of course, if you're going to work with horses. And it's young to have a bad back. So, what do you find, and how does that lead you to yoga and breathwork? And where does yoga and breathwork lead you? 
So there's so many odd transitions in this part of the story. This is like, you know, if you looked at like a ball of wool at this point, this is like the bit where it's all like tangled in together and there's lots of different moving parts. Yoga and breathwork. So I decided at some point that I needed to do something a little bit different to what it was that I was doing. And I really had got myself into a, a, a bit of a bad place mentally and physically at that point in time. And, and the transition came where I had horses that were, you know, that were either very young or that were able to be sort of semi-retired by that stage. So I had no kind of middle ground horses at that moment. And so what that meant is that my horses could go onto my parents' property and essentially they could look after them without it being a really big deal because they had quite a lot of land at that point in time. And so there was an opening, I guess, for me to do something different because that at that point, my commitment to my animals would have probably stopped me doing other things, but it just so happened that that was possible at that moment. And that was where I decided to go to New Zealand and with your back New Zealand. Yeah. Well, my back was kind of like workable at that point, but it was sort of like just permanently not okay. So they thought I had rheumatoid arthritis. They thought I had like loads of different things that were going on because it was sort of unusual to have the degree of what I had at the age that I was, like you said. And so I went to New Zealand and the second stage of that, which is when I sort of jumped ship and moved over there for the summer, I met an Israeli and ended up going back to Israel with him. Like you do. Like I do. Yeah. Yeah. And that was after living in New Zealand for a period of time and starting to wibble wobble around. And at that stage I was in Tel Aviv and there was a gym across the road and the gym was the best place that I started to learn Hebrew because I was doing this horrendous spin class. And they'd be like, Lamata, 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 which is like up, down, up, down. And so I started to learn all, all my Hebrew was coming from like the things that the gym people were shouting at me in, in classes to, to do. And, and so I, I, I was just like on a mission, basically. I had this like window where I wasn't working necessarily. I was living off savings and I decided to just get well. And as one of those classes was a yoga class. And I went into the yoga class and I, in my competitive mindset, was like, I'm really bad at yoga, which is like what a lot of people say. And it was just because I was like, had the flexibility of a concrete truck and just kind of found everything quite challenging. But I kept going and I thought, oh, maybe this is going to be able to help me in some way. And that really was kind of the catalyst for seeking out physical therapies that would allow me to find ease, basically, to just not be in pain. And alongside of that, again, I, like I find this really difficult to explain because I can't make sense of it. A lot of these transitions myself, it's all kind of like bound together. But I think that there, like there'd always been a part of me that was a seeker and there'd always been a part of me that was interested in you know, spirituality and wellness. And that was motivated by like another parallel thread in my life where, you know, someone in my family was incredibly unwell for the duration of my life in mental health wise. And I just remember thinking that to be out of control of my own mind was like the worst fate that I can imagine befalling you, someone. You were exposed to that as a kid. You saw yes, you yeah, saw yeah, mental illness yeah. within the family. Yes, and had to yeah. Deal. 
Yeah, very much so. And I think that kind of also informed a lot of what I talked about earlier as far as like, you know, just wanting to not rock the boat and to be the good girl and to tick the boxes because that just meant I could keep things as stable as possible and probably wasn't an element of control in my own life. Right. And I think that's where a lot of the pain came from. Yeah, because yeah. I think I think I think for a lot of reader listeners, they they might be like, well, you know, hold on, she's you know lives in this lovely spot, and then she's got these horses, and, and yeah. This, but one of the things which we all know is that these things can mask other things under the surface, and so if you are indeed dealing with mental illness in a sort of in your face kind of a way then yes indeed no matter how many on the surface nice things are going on there's an underlying insecurity and as a child that is difficult because it's your security so do you feel that you're yeah you're 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 the seeds of you as a seeker of human Wellness, I, th- I feel it's such an overused term, but I can't think of a better one at this particular point. Human okayness, really. Mm. Human he- the healing that brings us to that started actually quite early in your life. Do, do, do you feel that that was really early? Yeah, very, very early. And there are three strands to that that aren't necessarily altruistic in the first instance, although they have hopefully become more so that. The first is to want to save someone that you love, mm. right? So... That was one of my initial motivations. And after I, you know, absconded from the (laughs) the journalist and the law degree, I thought, well, maybe I'll be a psychiatrist or maybe I'll be a psychologist because that, or or a a researcher that could study like the ways that the brain works and, and so that I could stop, will help, you know, this person and also stop it happening from other people. And then the second thread of that was, what if that's, what if that's my destiny, right? Like what if there's nothing I can do? What if this is my lot? What if this is what I'm going to become? Uh, and so yeah. that was the second thread of that. And then the third thread was, um, I used to get quite nervous as a competitor and I did love writing. And so the psychology of like positive thinking and being able to control yourself mentally and emotionally was always really interesting to me. Like ever since I can remember my bedside table was like stacked with books about that. Um, that was what I read. Did you find those books yourself or did other, did, did your, your friends? I did find those books myself. Yeah. My mum had one, oh, that I can see the cover of it. That winning feeling by, oh, she just recently passed away. The, her name's just gone out of my head and she was such a. I'm going to look it up on my phone as Yes, but that was, my mum had that like very dog-eared book and so that kind of sparked my... Um, was that a helpful book? Would you, uh, yeah, you know, at the time, I think it was well ahead of its time. Now we see it as part of perhaps more the pop psychology, positive thinking. Jane Savoy, that winning piece. Jane Savoy, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. because we're so fortunate these days to be exposed to so much more because of the internet. I think that a lot of what she mentions in there would perhaps say we'd say as part of the mainstream movement within like, you know, affirmations and positive thinking and visualization and that sort of thing. But at the time that was pretty revolutionary, especially in the horse world. And so I used to have that as my Bible. And Did you used I to do would... affirmations when you were? 
Yeah, I did. Like Going I was, with your shows and such? Yeah, did yeah. Did it help? Yeah. I'm kind of hurt. I did okay. Did yeah, you feel did, did you feel a shift? Did you feel chunk no, in your chest I, I sort of thing? That, I no. I think that I always had that underlying disease within myself, but it helped me hold it together. And then there were moments where, you know, there's a it's kind of a, a funny juxtaposition and parallel that like in some ways, the lead up was always the worst. So that transition coming into it. But as soon as I got on my horse, I did feel like I could conquer the world. Okay. So, and not from a like, I'm going to steamroll you type way, but just like, I just felt so at home riding and doing what I did. And I was so proud of my horse and loved my horse so much that it was, that was kind of all I needed to, to get out there. Did you, it, where you at the time were less successful, for example, you know, when you made the, tra the transition to university and then found it wasn't for you. And then you became the sort of, you know, Jane Pike trying this, Jane Pike trying that, people ribbing you about that in your community. Were you also at that point trying affirmations in those areas of your life and then finding it wasn't working or did you sort of let it go and I'm adrift? Did you really only use the affirmations and that sort of thing in your competitive life? There was always a sense of something bigger than myself. I don't know that I was using the affirmations at that point. At that particular point you describe, I was struggling with a lot of things. I was struggling with food and I was struggling with exercise. And I used both of those things to punish myself. Mm. And I think I, I was so, I was in such a dark place at that time. And I was so full of self-loathing at that time. And now retrospectively, I can see that I was just trying to grab onto some semblance of control in an experience that just felt completely out of control. But I, I would, you know, I would exercise obsessively for like four hours a day after I'd worked all day. And then I was really, really strict with food. And, and I can see that I had a very disordered eating and very dysmorphic view of my own body. And I, that, is definitely, you know, that's not a feature, thank goodness, of my experience anymore. But it's, it was a very, at that particular moment in time, I think I was so. And you're dealing with this chronic pain. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and pain emotionally just of like where I was and, and just reconciling lots of different things that had happened in my life. So, yeah. So then you find yourself in the Holy Land doing Hebrew aerobics. On, Hebrew aerobics. I can yeah. make that joke so and so, so I'm the rabbi Rupert made us show But at this point, and then you find, then you fall into yoga and you're saying, okay, well, I've been a seeker for a while. This feels like it could have some answers for me. Yes. Where does this take you? So the particular relationship that took me to Israel ended, but I had I'd been there a little while and had quite a good community there and sort of was, went back and forth, but obviously I wasn't allowed to stay there because I was foreign and didn't have the right visa requirements and that sort of thing and had been doing bits and pieces there. And I'm just trying to piece together. It feels like such a, like such a long time ago, but I, so the bit that kind of came up in between, gosh, what's the order of operation here? I've completely confused this part of my life in my mind. So there, at one stage I was in Asia. So I was traveling. I That's traveled quite, quite a lot. Yeah. 
yeah, I left. I went back to Asia and I met some people in. Did you did you go to Asia looking on the yoga trail? Was that what took you there, or were you just traveling now following? Yoga? I was traveling. I was mainly traveling at that moment in time, but the yoga thing was definitely like strong in my mind. And then intermittently, I was going back to Australia at that point for work, and I was working and and. What were you doing? I, so as part of the health science thing, I'd done like a massage certification. So I did massage at a friend's clinic that paid quite well, like, cause you got like quite a decent amount of money for that. But at this point um, you've entered the healing arts. Yes. Yeah. So I was doing that and I knew, you know, sort of a, a bit of um, herbal medicine and, and all of these sorts of things. And I, w- I would ride for people. So there was like a bit of a mishmash of things that would happen when I went home. And I'd met someone in Thailand who worked for the Red Cross and he was from Belgium and he was doing some like local on the ground things in Belgium and and it ended up that we got talking quite a lot at that stage. It was like, I don't think I did. I have a mobile phone at that stage. I might have had a mobile phone, but it was like sort of the hotmail messenger type thing. Like that was like, you had to like log on at the same time. And it was like, do you remember that? There was like an MSN messenger or something like that. It was something like that. To me, that only feels like five minutes ago, but I I, I remember when Mastodon still bellowed to Mastodon. So yeah. So that was us chatting at that point. And, and Gosh, I'm trying to I'm trying to place my years and the order that I did things in. But when I was in, so I when I was sort of dipping around in yoga at home, there was a <clears throat> there was a lady that I spoke to. So my natural inclination, coming from a competitive family and also coming from a family coming from a position where exercise was like self punishment and self flagellation and I was like using it. And your it parents as a, were competitive runners too. So it was a yes, of grueling yeah, yeah, exercise yeah. as part of the deal, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, but they just like, we, we're a very active family, but I don't know that, you know, that I used necessarily the gifts that were bespoke, bestowed to me in the way that I do now. But at that point, I did the types of yoga, which was like, you just feel like you want to die at the end of it. And that to me was success. What kind of yoga <laughs> is that? Well, you know, you do like, I did Ashtanga and like, can sort of talk, like, talk us to, for those people that don't know what Ashtanga yoga is, talk to us yeah. about yoga. So Just Ashtanga before you do yoga. that, let me ask you one quick question. Had yes. you found, had you found the answer to the pain in your back at this point? No, but I, I could see that there was potential of moving in the right direction with it. So I, I saw like a light for that. So you yeah. felt that the yoga was strengthening you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, t- so tell us about Ashtanga yoga. Ashtanga yoga comes out of, so there were three main teachers that were students of the main kind of yoga guru who brought it to the West called Krishnamacharya. And Hatabi Joyce was one of those yoga students. And he created, he didn't really create, but he was the one that sort of popularized this form of yoga called Ashtanga. And there were two other teachers that were descendants of that lineage of the Krishnamacharya lineage, and they were Ayenga. So some, a lot of people will be familiar with Ayenga yoga, much more structured, a lot of rules around Ayenga yoga that deals with body alignment. And they use quite a lot of props like straps and blocks and like there's ways of, of shaping the body towards this particular outcome. And the third person who's much less known was Mohan, A.G. Mohan and his wife Indra, 
who are very much into the therapeutic side of yoga. And so there were these three students that studied with him. Patabi Joyce is from Mysore in India. There's kind of a big movement in Mysore towards Ashtanga. And Ashtanga originally was the form of yoga that was designed for teenage boys, basically. So a very active, very strength-based, very dynamic form of yoga that would suit a boy with a lot of testosterone, a lot of strength, a lot of, you know, a lot of just physical capacity to do that and not necessarily designed for women, especially because of the types of breath work that it utilizes and the type of body movement that it utilizes has quite a strong effect on the reproductive system. And because women weren't in mind when that system was around And so it's just a very, very physical yoga. You go through a set of postures that all form a part of a sequence that are constantly flowing and you tie in the breath with that. And so it's because there's these set sequences and set levels that you go through in order to kind of like graduate to the next level, you, your body needs to be able to move in particular ways. And for me, that wasn't part of how my body liked to move, you know, in terms of just my natural inclination. And so I found it quite challenging, but again, it fitted in quite well with trying to make my body do something. Why were you attracted to that one and not the other two types? Why not the therapeutic type or why not the very structured type? Why this dynamic made for 18 year old boys type? Well, it was popular where I was at that moment. And I didn't realize, didn't really realize the lineage that it was springing from. And you, you went to my sword, did you? You ended up. In- no, I didn't. This was in, this was at home that I said I was doing this. And also, you know, I really thought that in order to be doing something good for my body, I, you had to really feel it like the no pain, no gain type philosophy. So it just went in line with, I, I was just trying to escape myself, Rue. Like I was just, so I needed to sweat it out. I needed to push myself. I needed to like punish myself to some degree, even though I wouldn't have said that's what I was doing. That's what I needed at the time. And to think of being still just meant that I had to meet myself. And that would probably be one of the worst things that I could think of at that particular And moment. how did you feel it was working for you just in terms of building strength or... Well, I was sore. Like it wasn't really working for me. I was, I had sore knees. I had sore elbows. I had sore, you know, shoulders because I was, there's a lot of jumping and a lot of like push up type motions and a lot of very physical things, which for me, if you're doing it repetitively and you're not doing it in a way where the body's able to sustain itself, you develop compensation patterns. And so now it's like, oh gosh, my right shoulder hurts because I'm using that arm more and I'm doing this like 50 times a session. And so that starts to have a, have an effect, but the, the way out of that was actually following someone that had most likely been in a similar position to me, who was one of my main Ashtanga teachers and then started studying with Mohan, who was the therapeutic teacher. And she came back from Chennai, which is where he was based and just started teaching this like incredibly slow form of yoga. And I was like, is this like this is doing nothing I now need to go for like a 50k run if I do this like that was my mentality you know it's not enough to kind of keep me in shape or whatever it is I was supposed to be at that time and so she sort of sparked a seed in me and then from there I did some prodding around on the internet and decided that I was going to go and study with them directly when I was in India I was going to go to India yeah so you end up in India and now you're studying this 
therapeutic form of yoga. Yeah. Yes. Is your pain getting better? So Mohan and his wife Indra are quite magical people. And the first course that I did was eight weeks and you go and you sit on their concrete floor and you listen all day to them and you do practices and they teach you the Vedas and they teach you the everything and you go and have a consultation with Indra and Indra is like, because she's a woman, she doesn't get the same accolades as her husband, but actually she's probably the most skilled of the two. But she's just A.G. Mohan's wife, if that makes sense. But she's studied the same as him. She's actually, she's, she's really the magical one of the two of them. And she, because I was female, she was the one that saw me because there's quite strict customs there in terms of who sees who. So we go into the room and she asks me to, she does like a, gets me to move in a couple of different ways. And, and their approach is they give you a personal practice. So they actually give you the postures to do based on your mind and your body, um, which was a first for me because everything else had been generic up until that point. So they design postures for you. They design a sequence for you. And I went in, to, I can remember it really clearly. I went into her little room and she is like, for the time you are here, you're only doing what I say. You're only doing these postures. Because I was doing my Ashtanga practice in the morning and then going to them, you see. This is the level of my addiction, actually. Like I was like, I was doing something that I thought would like keep me strong and fit. And then I was going to go and do the therapeutic yoga, which was like the next thing on the side that I could tell other people. And she was like, no, 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 you, you, you're not doing that anymore. You're not doing that. And that was like a crisis of, for me for a month. I, I did do what she said because I was like, I'm here. It feels very disrespectful to not do what she is asking if I'm going to be in this. But I had a real moment with that. That was like the beginning, I think, of breaking it was basically like an alcoholic arriving and them saying, you're not drinking for the next eight weeks. And you're like, what? Like that, that's how it felt. Like I was, that's how I imagine it would feel. It's like, I was so addicted to that as a way of like keeping my mind in a, in a container that I could manage that to think about letting that go was actually terrifying. Um, but you felt it, that the Ashtanga was basically keeping the lid on your wobbly mental health. And that if you were yeah. to let that go, and, you might wobble outside the jar sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also beyond that, I think that, and I, I don't know, I'm sorry, this is going a little bit outside the remit of what your podcast is about, isn't it? But it, no, no, it's all, it's, 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 it's how we get, it's um, how we get, it's how we get to self-actualization. Yeah. It's interesting as well. I think that Journey. for me and the reason that I talk about this, well, I have no shame around it, but also I think that a lot of, I was going to say women, but I think a lot of people will go through this where the way that I controlled my life was through controlling my body. And so my thought processes around controlling my body at that moment in time was with punishing exercise. And so if I let that go, I thought that would mean, A, I would start looking a certain way, which was Again, I didn't even really have ideas about, like I didn't, it's, it's funny to reflect on because it wasn't so much that I was like judging people's body shapes, but for me, it was just control. Like it was like, I just was aiming to look a certain way in order to stay controlled. And that involved, I guess I had so much adrenaline coursing through my system 
that that was kind of burning that up as well. And if it wasn't being burned up, then I had to deal with it in other ways. Right. But I found, interestingly, that because I am a good student and I do do what I'm told if I, into a certain extent at that moment in time, that I followed the practice. I was like, well, I'm here. And I, it was actually so beautiful aside from, I would get up in the morning and for those of you who've been to India, it's like this very, it's a mishmash of different things. So on the one hand, you'd have the call to prayer. That's very, very beautiful. Like so, so beautiful. I'm up before the sun. It's I've, I've laid out my little yoga mat. I'm on my little concrete floor. My, my place is super basic. You know, there's no toilet, no anything like that. I've got the call to prayer. The air is warm. I'm like, this feels lush. And then all of a sudden someone starts like hoiking outside my window, like, like clearing us, right? And like, yeah, and you know, like the ablutions begin. You're like, what a, this is India, right? Like the juxtaposition between this is the most sublime thing that's ever happened to me. And then all of a sudden someone starts like, just literally like Taking throwing shit up right outside your window. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And, and you're like, well, hell, right back, yeah. back to reality, <laughs> back to reality. And so that was... And what I noticed over the course of six weeks was with this very, very, very soft and gentle practice, everything started to shift for me at that moment. And so that was a really huge transition. And I kind of dedicated myself to them for a long period of time. How long? Um, Years. Like I studied with them for years and I did the practice for years. And I I thought- So you would say Indra- All I want to do. What so it's Mohan and Indra Mohan 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 is the is the family name. Yes, yeah, yeah. They were the the Mohans were your mentors basically. Yes, yeah. But for how long? For like a decade? For like five years? Yeah, yeah, decade. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And at that stage as well, like I really I and and I think this suited me because it meant that I didn't have to show up in life for other things that were challenging to me at that moment I thought I just wanted to go and be in a cave and I was just going to be that person that like meditated and did yoga and I just was going to get enlightened that was like my idea I was like yeah I'm just that's what I'm going to do I'm going to like check out I'm just going to do this I'm going to be in whatever way I need to be in life as much as I need to be and then I'm just going to do this thing I'm just going to be by myself and do the thing and I think that again retrospectively that was very convenient because it you know relationships are hard and like showing up in the world is hard and and if you can like if you can be like oh maybe actually the idea is that you should just like be in a cave and like and secrete yourself away like it was that was quite a attractive idea at that moment because and was that promoted by the Mohans or was that more your, your own idea that that was what you had to do? They were very much, not necessarily in overt ways, because I don't want to seek to represent them at all. They're, they're very encouraging and will create a supportive framework around whatever your life is showing. Okay. But they're ultimately as a practice, you know, like they're aiming to bring the mind towards one pointed focus. And that is about controlling earthly desires, yeah. right? So, leaving the senses behind, leaving the body behind. Yes, the mind. Yeah, transcendent. Every yeah. So, and there, you know, for instance, if I just remember hearing him talk one day, and that when he travelled, 
he didn't go looking around at things. He would go back to his room and meditate. And I remember thinking, wow, like that's interesting, isn't it? Like to not be interested in what's going on around you in a place that you've never been before, but instead to just do the work that you came for and then just go back and meditate was kind of like jarring thought for me. And that, you know, relationship has a purpose for procreation and then you know, beyond that, it's like, not that they weren't very loving towards each other, but the, they, they understood that their ultimate purpose was to unite with the divine. And that was, that was bigger than what either of them were individually or what their relationship was. And so, you know, there are a lot of beautiful things that came out of that experience for me and a lot of problematic things that came out of that for me, I, I won't speak for them or their lineage, but for me, from a you know, cultural perspective and from a perspective of who I understand myself to be now and who I understand myself to have always been, but just didn't really recognize. Because So at, at a certain point, did you become like an instructor? You were... Yeah, yeah, I was hard out teaching. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. Are you like... I did all of the things, yeah. Yeah. Being flown and around the world I, teaching wealthy Chinese businessmen type thing, yoga or... Yeah, I did work body. in China for a period okay. in Hong Kong. And like I okay. went to China and I, I was teaching all over the place. I was in Bali. I was going to set up retreat centers and yoga centers. So this all, is all success. Over. I mean, you've now found this this thing with this, this therapeutic yoga. I presume it's making you feel better to some degree. Must be making other people feel better. That's the irony, isn't it? It gave me a focus. I don't know that it made me feel better. It gave me a focus, and and I think that that was a relief, having been swimming around in this, um, you know, what am I going to do with my life thing? All of a sudden, like I was something that I could attach something to. You're good at it, and people want you. You're marketable. Yeah, you've mastered it. You've found mastery of something. Yeah, enough to be able to impart. Right. Where are the horses yeah. in this? Have they gone completely by the by at this point? They have at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Are you yeah. missing them somehow? Yeah. Are you not I thinking am, about yeah. that? No, I am missing them. Yeah. I am missing them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I had like, you know, there's, I had crises of, of sorts again, because I was traveling quite extensively and I was doing other work in between there. But, you know, you see a lot of people in Bali, for instance, I saw people that were expats and there's like an expat community and I just remember feeling deeply uncomfortable with the situation in that they're they're very affluent in the country that they're they've arrived in because obviously the currency that they come with is worth a lot more than the currency they're playing with in that moment they all have housekeepers and there's just this like residue of colonialism and hierarchical living that really really made me uncomfortable and and the yoga community in those places is very much a part of that because a lot of the reason why people go there in the first place is to seek some form of wellness and wellness solutions and wellness retreats and there's a lot of people that have set up things there that are kind of doing so under this pseudo idea that they're you know helping humanity but actually what I saw was just like well this is just a convenient I don't know, it just really didn't sit well with me. And you, and you saw that in a, in a few different places, that kind of, oh, we're helping out here. But actually it's like, no, you're under a really good wicket and you're doing so at the expense of local people. And it just is just was weird to me. Yeah, but, and so I, 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 I always had this thought of like, 
this can't be the end point because I watched, I just, I remember sitting in a cafe and I like saw a group of men come in that were all in their little like, you know, pogas or whatever. I was going to say seven dwarves outfits. I'm, I'm, I'm on there. <laughs> no, they're in Goa. It's like, there's a, there's a look. And I, I, and I looked at them and I thought, I can't be that. I just can't end up like that. Like I can't be that. And, and I thought at some point when you've stayed away too long, you can't go back, you know, because you've either absented yourself from your culture or financially, you just can't go back because now you're used to living in India and everything is so cheap. And, and so I, I always had this idea of this was temporary, but I wasn't quite sure where things were going to lead next. So where yeah. did they lead next? And what was the transition point? So the transition point was, there are a few things that happened because this is sort of like a few, you know, over the course of many years that I was in Europe for a period and I went to see my friend who was the Red Cross worker that I mentioned. Oh, uh, the Israeli um, guy. Yeah, no, no, no the, Bel the Belgian guy. Belgian. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there were some local projects that they were involved with that I was just volunteering at and helping out with. And then around that time, the tsunami happened. It was like 2000 and 2004. And so there were all people getting dispatched over there, initially to Thailand, then to Sri Lanka. And Chennai, where I'd been studying in India, was marginally affected, like southern India, but not so badly as the, as the other places. And I had the opportunity to go. And I'd already been doing different pieces of work that were like aid humanitarian related projects whenever I could around the place, both personally and then kind of hooking in with other groups. And so I went and decided to be a part of the like dispatch that went to Sri Lanka. And so shortly after that happened, that's where I arrived and was there for the next 12 months or so. And I think that that was a real sort of turning point for me as well, where I was like, I need something. I, I just need to figure myself out. Like I really need to figure myself out. And I went back to New Zealand after that. That's where I was like, okay. I have oh, to, I have no, to hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You must have done something quite interesting down there. What did you do <laughs> in the aftermath of the tsunami? Not just gloss over yeah. that. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there were sort of different. Okay. That's enough. Let's move on. Sorry. Yeah, there were different parts to it. The first part was anyone who's done any sort of aid work, and, and I had been doing things prior, so it wasn't sort of my first foray, but the, there's a huge amount of corruption in Asia and in, you know, Indian subcontinent and all around there, and I'd been traveling and working all around there, so I was kind of used to the, used to the game. But after the tsunami, it kind of hit new levels, especially, especially with the president of Sri Lanka, who was female at that time. I'm not quite sure who it is now, but she was, there was a huge outpouring of public donations because, I mean, this is one of the first times really, I think, where something to that scale had been caught on camera for the mainstream to be able to experience. And so, you know, people holidaying had caught it on their mobile phones and it was all over the the news and it was so shocking. Like it was, it was really, really so shocking that it moved people to give money in ways that they hadn't really given money before. And so, of course, this goes to the powers that be initially in the country that doesn't go to the people that 
who need it. It goes to the people who you hope are going to equitably distribute it. And in Sri Lanka, that definitely wasn't the case. So she profited very handsomely and fabulously off people's donations in that first instance. And so when when you work or are with a organization that are that have a huge administrative background, there is also limitations in what you can do because everything has to go through process, of course. So how how publicly good this is to talk about. But anyway, so that was the first part of it was with, with the organization. Then what we decided was that we would come back independently. And we thought, well, you know, if we had like you and a small group a small, of people there. Yes. Yeah. If we came back and we independently raised money and we had like thousands of dollars in our own bank accounts that were, we just directly like went in and just helped people out. We could do something faster than we could if we have to wait for this whole process to happen. And so the person I was with, he was a a very skilled photographer. I had sort of other skills that were going on. And the other thing that we did at that point in time was my main role was I worked with the the children quite a lot and it was very much making it up as you go. So I could see that the kids were quite traumatized, but also desperate to be children. And so I said to them, because one of the things I was really aware of was the, the sort of white savior thing that happens, or you create that mentality where you're handing out money and it's a very disempowering situation for people, especially individuals, you know, with their own pride and their own stuff going on. And so with the children, I thought, well, how can we make it so that they feel like they're actually raising their own money, even if it's not actually the case? So there's like a sentiment that they have a part in what they're receiving. And so I said, look, we've got a art, a museum sort of art gallery, a couple of different art galleries that are interested in auctioning off your pictures because I know that you do really good art you've been drawing with me and you do really good pictures so do you want to draw some pictures for me and so they started producing this artwork that was just like wild like and I didn't ask them to draw about the tsunami I just said you can draw whatever you want like it doesn't doesn't matter and they drew these like big black waves with like teeth coming out of them and like bodies floating on top of the water and like people hanging off trees and like basically like whatever was in their subconscious, these little kids that were just like, would come out with these like pictures of like death and destruction and like metaphorical representations of the wave. And I was like, oh, wow, that's lovely. That's lovely. Thank you. Just be like, Like, where am I going to take this? Like it was, it was a thing. And so I collected all of their artwork and I said, thank you. We're going to take it. And there's people, you know, in places that might be able to help us right now that are going to auction off your work. And then we're going to come back and, and, and help you. And that's kind of, and that's kind of what we did. Um, and we also had prints and things that we made from there and we were just hard out fundraising when we got home. And then we went back directly with the money in our bank accounts and just worked as nobodies but already knew kind of the ins and outs of what was needed and and where to put the money so we just picked a few we picked a village basically and we picked families that we thought we could most influence and help and and then we just did what we could there yeah I didn't keep doing that and what happened to the yoga in between yoga I was just practicing myself but I wasn't that that was kind of the core of my work was being there I mean you can live very very simply in places like that on next to nothing so Right. So you're doing this and you're helping rebuild communities there with mm-hmm. money that you've raised directly. What takes you away from that? 
it came to a natural conclusion, I think, where you realize the end of your capacity. Well, A, you run out of money. (laughs) And B, you get to the end of your usefulness. I think there's like a natural evolution of chapters that people go through in those experiences where you realize like now something bigger needs to happen. And also just for myself, I had started to get to that place where I was like, I, I have to make a decision about, I have to be a grown up basically. Like what's, what can I, I, I wanted to have roots a little bit. Like I wanted to, to find a place where I could. You've been traveling for a while by now. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been traveling for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it with a sort of lost feeling inside. And so I was like, I think I'm going to go back to New Zealand and I'm just going to land there. The landscape always felt really good to me there or here. And I never, you know, there's aspects of Australia, which are always going to be a part of me, which actually is to do with the landscape as well and smells and animals and those sorts of things. But I never really wanted to stay. I knew that wasn't the place that I was going to stay. And I think actually, you know, I have a nomadic tendency anyway, that perhaps I struggled to reconcile for a long time, but yeah. So you you end up back in New Zealand. Yeah. You, you followed healing. You followed. Yeah. You've become, you've achieved a, a certain mastery in a healing form of yoga. You then taken that healing into social healing with advocacy and rebuilding of communities after the tsunami. And this is all pretty significant work. And then you arrive as Jane Pike again in New Zealand. What do you do then? At first I was writing. At first I was writing. I, well, I had two things going on. I was just working in a shop, like just to have money. And um, that was, it was a retail shop selling like different clothes and other things. And so I was sitting there and. Did that feel a little surreal after? Yeah, it was very surreal. It was very, very surreal. But it was kind of welcome at the same time because I, I just was, I needed to regroup. Like it was stable. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It had been a lot. And, uh, and so the, it was something where I got like a regular amount of income that was like very, very little and, but it was enough to kind of like pay rent and eat and do all the things. And then I started to, to write because at that point I wanted to write a book. And also I, it sounds like I was just dropping things in, but I'm not quite sure how they, how they happened. I did have a column. I had like a column in a couple of newspapers at one point in time that I was writing for and I'd managed to kind of weasel my way in there. You arrived back and started freelancing a bit. Yes. Yeah. Had yeah. you been dabbling in writing through this whole time? Like, not really. just I just pitched myself. Yeah. Oh, really? And but like, you don't, had yeah. you always sort of wanted to write? I always considered I always loved writing yeah words were always something that I loved doing and so I thought initially I wanted to write a children's book but I I don't know I just I always wrote and so that seemed like I mean that's where the journalism came from right like that and what were you writing what 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 columns are you writing for these papers well from what you've been doing so at one point I won a competition and it was and then afterwards they said oh actually we kind of like your work would you 
come on as a regular, we've had like good responses to the work and it was, it was about, it was fashion. It was like a fashion class. <laughs> of course it was up and right. And, and I won a, I won a competition yoga. to be like the reporter, if you like, over a fashion week. And so I did that and then that stuff came out of that, but it was such, I ended up quitting because it was such a like wildly misogynistic place that was really stuck in the dark ages that actually that's probably one of my proudest moments where I like quit on principle of something and then later on and they were really assholes about it and then later on they begged for me to come back and I got to say no again which was like you know this beautiful moment in my life actually <laughs> you have a, a little plaque on the wall doesn't it? yeah no to the totally yeah yeah okay so now you've fallen into writing is it all fashion or do you start to go? Writing and retail. Yeah, that's right. Fashion and retail. It, so that was just literally for bill paying mm. practices. And then behind the scenes, I was playing with fiction writing. Yeah. And so the idea was that I was going to write my own thing and just be single and, and have enough money to get by so that I could do that and just be free, basically. How long did that last? No, not very long. I met my husband fairly soon after that. <laughs> so then how, how does it go from you're, you're back from this significant adventure? Yeah. You, you've learned these skills, but now you appear to have abandoned them. You, you're, you're going in a whole new direction. You're writing now. You're doing bill paying fashion and retail stuff, but you're, you're writing. How does, how do you go from that to running this really successful, interesting online equestrian and nervous system thing? Yeah. Um, how, how does it happen? So being back in New Zealand, I, I did start to sort of play in the horse world again, although I didn't have my own horse to start with. And then when I met my husband, he, I was on the North Island at that point he was on the South Island and I ended up moving down here and he and we had some land together down here and so he said do you want to get a horse and I said I don't think you understand what that means and he was like oh yes I do and I was like no no like if I ha if I had horses I horse like I'm like I, I'm not a casual horser. I'm like, I, so it's either I'm in or I, and he's like, oh, no, no, no. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't know that you, you really understand. And so clearly he didn't because we got a horse. And then that's led to me to where I am now. <laughs> so then it was, it was beautiful, you know, in that, like, this is, I guess, where all of the different seeds start to merge. And the initial idea for it was that I thought, okay, there are a lot of people struggling with physical things to do with writing and with my background in like therapeutic yoga and like body stuff, I dabbled with starting to help people from that perspective. And then it became apparent to me through our conversations that a lot of what people were struggling with was like confidence and anxiety issues. And, and I had things to say about that that were helpful to people but they I had never considered that to be something that would be like it was so natural to me to talk about that stuff and it was so in me to talk about it that it wasn't anything that I considered to be a skill 
yeah. uh, until I recognize that, oh, maybe I do have something to say that people would, would like to hear about. And so what mainly started was I started a Facebook page and this was kind of in the early days of Facebook where I just blogged, like I wrote every day and I blogged about the things that to do with the mind and emotions and the body from the perspective of all the things that I've been studying and learning about. And people were really interested in it. Like I started to have a really solid following. I never sold anything for like years. Um, I literally just wrote and put lots of free stuff out there. I just shared what I knew. And I, and I started to get a, a bit of a following off the back of that. And I'd always studied like it was in the meantime, I was studying like loads of different like mental skills and, and, you know, like I've studied, I've done masters in hypnotherapy and like, and like loads, loads of different things, different psychology, psychology studies and lots of different things kind of running in the background. I actually started another university course in violence and trauma that when I got back from the tsunami how to call it or how to recover from it <laughs> how to recover from it but then i realized that actually just at the time that is something that i'd wished i'd continued on with but being in the position i was at the time i was one of the few people that was sort of working full time and trying to study full time and i just couldn't do it i had no support from the outside so it was like i just i can't actually live and and <laughs> eat and and do this at the same time so that that fell away at that point. And it really did evolve from there. When I had my first child, Flynn, so he's 12 this year, that was kind of the, the seed of like, like I think part of, partially it was the seed of frustration that bore the actual business in its form that it is now in terms of like, I've lost my autonomy. You know, my partner is working really, really long hours and is way a lot. And I'm completely reliant on other people to look after my baby if I want to do anything that's like separate to me. So what can I do that will like feed this sort of intellectual energy that I have and create? Because by now you're living life. in a remote part of the sun yes. island. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And we've gone from this completely cosmopolitan life. Now you're yes. yeah. Yeah. down there. Yeah. In future, um, but isolated yeah and so that's how it started I I started putting together like little packages for for well writing initially like continuing on with the blog that I'd started and then putting together little packages and at that stage like anything internet wise was a very new endeavor like now memberships and stuff like that are so common that everyone has a membership at that point, I remember talking to a software person and him not even knowing what I was talking about. He's like, oh, that's not a thing. You can't do that. That would be, that would be like $20 million to like create that. And I was like, oh, I have no money. Excellent. So, so everything started with zero money. Like I had no, no money. I had to do it all myself. If I wanted to figure it out, I needed to learn it and, or it needed to cost like only $5. <laughs> that was basically like my budget. And so I did, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of studying in the background all the way through. I'm starting to get like a small amount of people to the point where the first thing I offered was a boot camp. I called it a boot camp and it went for six months and I gave people content like at the start of each month that was, that was specifically focusing on like confidence type things. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I am like, this is so much money. I think I charged them like a hundred dollars each and there was maybe 15 people in it and I was like this I've made it like this is it I've got like something coming in that just felt like this phenomenal achievement 
And there was another really kind of cataclysmic moment where all the way through I've had to teach myself. So I've always been doing like business courses or I'd look for someone that was doing something similar in terms of a format that I thought was good, even if it was a completely unrelated topic. And I just study their thing to like look at their format. And so at one point I signed up for this business course and it was $800. It was $800 New Zealand dollars, which for me was like, this is outrageous. Like, and I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my husband. I just put it on the credit card, put it on my credit card. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put it on the credit card. And then, and because I've done this so deceitfully, (laughs) I have to make it back by the end of it. Like I have to make it back like that. There's no choice about that. And so within the six weeks I did, I did, I created two different courses off the back of that one, which was competitively focused and one which was confidence focused. And then that kind of led me to the membership just through realizing what different people needed at different moments. So, yeah. Now, Confident Rider and Joyride are these known things and you've got a following all over the world. What would you say now it is that you do and offer? If you were to put it in your, I'm not even the elevator pitch, but if you, if you were to say more or less in a nutshell, what it is you give people through this online involving their nervous system what is it so it's a movement-based program and we are ultimately looking to create nervous system adaptability so we're interested in getting people into a position and a place where if we, we think of it technically their brain and body are responding accurately to what's going on in their life and for lots of people they're not responding accurately they're either in groundhog day situations they're finding themselves overreacting or underreacting and that that shows up in writing that shows up in life that shows up mentally physically and emotionally and so I look at biomechanics but I look at it from a nervous system perspective which it which is quite a different lens to view it from than traditional biomechanics we look at mindset and also emotions within the template that the nervous system creates as well But I think that there's a slightly different flavor also to what I offer that perhaps I haven't been so vocal about in the beginning in that I'm I'm really fascinated by the body and I have so much reverence and respect for science and everything that it offers us and have, you know, gone deeply down that rabbit hole and will continue to myself. However, there also has to be room for the mystical and the magical. and. I think that a lot of our conversations, while they're rooted in that scientific understanding, also allow space for just what it means to be human and what it means to be, you know, a part of the world that we're in and the landscape that we're in and and to recognize that there is something bigger than us at play. So, you know, it's it's all of those things. Does that make sense? This sounds like it goes far beyond helping people out with their confidence on horseback. Yeah, the horses are such a gift in that they're, well, firstly, they give people a reason to look at things that might not be comfortable, acceptable, quote unquote, or okay to look at without them. So for instance, you know, people may well recognize that they struggle with anxiety generally, or they're feeling like, gosh, is this kind of it as far as their life is concerned? But 
they don't give themselves permission to really look at those things in isolation or they wouldn't go to someone to talk about them because that would be just kind of not something that they would ever do. But if it relates to their riding or they can use their horse as like the thing outside of themselves, which is the conversation kickstarter, then it takes the pressure off them. It takes the spotlight off them and it just provides a way in to have bigger conversations that, that just feel more possible. What would that's you say what is, my experience has been, yeah. What would you say is the prevalent thing about the nervous system in the brain? that you find yourself now helping people with the most? So I think that one of the gifts of the, the time that we're in is that this nervous system awareness is becoming much more mainstream, that it is, it's not uncommon, especially in the world that you're moving in and the world that I move in, for people to have some kind of understanding about the nervous system, whereas that used to be like 10 or 20 years ago, like such a foreign idea to talk about. And I think that just in science in general, it's really like there's been huge leaps and, and evolutions in understanding that. And so for me, what my work involves, which is not something that I see commonly talked about and or offered, is this understanding of the different motor reflex patterns that we move through when we're in the fight-flight response. And so if we consider as we go into our sympathetic system, there are these templates, if you like, that the body utilizes in order to fulfill the function of that nervous system state. So fight, flight, freeze, and there's a couple of You're saying just for those, for those people who are not nervous system people, the sympathetic nervous system is the fight, flight, freeze. Fight, flight, nervous system. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So within, within the fight flight nervous system, there are these different reflex patterns, which are essentially structural or movement patterns. That means that for any of us who move into a fight response, for any of us that move into a flight response or a freeze response, there is a way that your body moves itself, a way that your body orients itself from the inside out that is observable and, and discernible in that like if, if Rue or myself was in a fight, I, can, I would be able to observe that by the way the structure of the body moves. So there's a template that that creates. And so alongside that physical template. And again, it, it, we do that in order to maximize the purpose of that particular state. So for fight, I'm really wanting to maximize my force. For flee, I'm wanting to maximize my acceleration. And so the body orients itself in order to fulfill that function. And this has been such a revelation to me because a lot of what we see as dysfunction, dis-ease, disharmony in the body is the body operating more often than not from one of these sympathetic patterns, from one of these fight-flight patterns. And the brain in and of itself, for a number of different reasons, has lost the capacity to move fluently between the different nervous system states, which is essentially, if I am a human with adaptability and who isn't stuck on a particular channel, I'm able to flip in between any of the states, both fight, flight and parasympathetic. So parasympathetic is like just optimal mode of functioning, sort of normal everyday functioning. Being okay, um, basically. Being okay. And the survival nervous system is really only designed for me being under physiological threat. So for most of us, hopefully, who aren't in a position where we're under physiological threat in the day-to-day, -day, there is no reason for us to be in our sympathetic nervous system. 
but many of us are living there and that creates different problems for us on every level. So would you say, would you say that, uh, yeah, would you say that the majority of people that you find that you're working with, despite the comfort of Western life, the physical comforts of Western life are in fact for a multitude of reasons, basically living in their fight flight nervous system. Yeah. Even, yeah. I would say that even when there is no elephant coming at them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's like a, you know, a, a meme that goes around saying, you know, I want my, my nervous system to my fight flight nervous system to kick on in response to the tiger, not reading the email sort of thing. And it's like, it's, it's true. Right. Why like, do you I think, think, why do you think we're, we're all living in this fight flight freeze when we're not in war zones? Uh, because we have become 50 steps removed from our environment. We're no longer getting the amount of movement novelty or sensory feedback that we would if we were part of a hunter-gatherer type setting. And that starts to intimately affect how our nervous system is able to function and operate. So basically we're stressed because we're not living in the natural environment that our organism is programmed for. Yeah, it's, what has happened now is that meeting our life needs and meeting our survival needs is a cognitive choice rather than a physical reality. So if I was part of a, a living situation where I was required to be in the world and that, that meant that I had to move, so I had to look after the people in my community, I had to go out and search for my food, I had to tend to my shelter, I had to like be in my environment as part of that reciprocal economy. I'm always moving. I'm always, my sensory system, my sensory nervous system is always getting stimulated. I'm always encountering novelty, which means that my brain is always receiving information about my current reality. And now we're in a situation where movement has become a choice and we are no longer required to be in the world should we choose not to be. And so the you amount that we could that sit, we're, in our, sit in our rooms and order Uber Eats. Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the example that I use, you know, like I can, I can be in this office, I can order food, I can bring someone to come and fix the roof. I can get on Facebook and I could essentially sit in my chair. Perhaps I wouldn't be thriving, but I could stay here for decades and still live. That's completely possible. And so now if we think and of it through the lens of that. Yeah, well, it's, it's even more than that. It's like if we use the example of a traumatic situation, if I go out and ride my horse or I just go out into the world and something happens to me that I register as upsetting to the point where I might label it as traumatic, if I sit in my office, essentially, in order for that experience to have context, in order for my brain to be able to contextualize it as that happened yesterday or that happened this morning or that happened last year, I need to be constantly uploading new information. I need to be constantly in the world. My sensory system needs to be bringing in new information to my brain. So my brain is not prioritizing or sitting front and center that experience. It's because I'm, I'm required to be out there. And so when that happens, things get contextualized. It's like I had that kind of shitty experience, but that happened last year. Now what happens is that we have this unpleasant event. We come and sit wherever it is we are in our home and we don't go out. We don't engage. Our, our sensory system isn't getting stimulated. We're not moving in novel ways. And so it becomes the dominant process for the brain. It becomes the dominant pattern that isn't being challenged by any other information coming in. 
So um, basically the, the trauma doesn't get massaged out of us. We don't, we don't, we don't. Is that what you're saying? That, that, that this, I'm going to go back to this novel movement thing. Cause it, yeah. it's a novel thing to hear. It's still a novel term to me, novel movement. I think, I think listeners would like to have that explained to them, but basically these different forms, are you saying that these different forms of movement that we would encounter in a natural situation where we've got to walk and climb, we've got to swim, we've got to bump against the trees, we've got to dig, we've got to whatever give us a certain input through the nervous system that assuages quote-unquote traumatic events and then leads us to resilience and then if we don't have that we kind of get stuck in those unpleasant experiences is that basically what you're yeah is it, is it all right for me to give a little background to it Please. i think it's without it it's a little more difficult to understand if you think of it in very simplistic terms the brain is always looking to answer the question are we safe that's the baseline of, of any type of conversation that the brain is having with the environment. And we're relational creatures, meaning we're always looking to assess what it is, how it is we fit in this situation, in any situation that we come into. So the way that we do that is through sensory information. Sensory information comes into the brain. We have 19 different sensors that we're constantly feeling into the environment with. And it's coming into this place in our brain called the reticular activating system. And the reticular activating system is using that information to answer that question, are we safe? The answer is either yes, no, or maybe, right? So if it's yes, then what gets sent out is a motor pattern, which is a movement pattern, right? So sensory in, motor pattern out, movement pattern out. That motor pattern can either be a parasympathetic pattern or a sympathetic pattern. It's either one of those two things. If the brain says, yes, you're safe, then we create a new pattern that is based on matching the circumstance. So I create a whole new response based on what it is that I'm in relationship with. And that's something I haven't experienced before because it's not a reflex, right? It's a new pattern that the brain creates. When, I am, when the answer is no, then the brain chooses which of these reflex states are we going to choose? Are we going to put them in fight? Are we going to put them in flight? Are we going to put them in freeze or collapse? That's, that's the template that it chooses. If it's maybe, the brain always errs on the side of caution. And so we go into the sympathetic system, right? Just as a just-in-case policy. So that's it. Sensory information comes in, a movement pattern gets set out. The movement pattern is either parasympathetic or sympathetic. That's the sort of the basis of it. So in order for our sensory system to stay alive and remembering the sensory system is what the brain needs to make accurate decisions about the situation that it's in. In order for the sensory system to be alive, it needs to be constantly stimulated. and it gets constantly stimulated through interactions with different experiences that capture our attention. We're always looking to be efficient. So basically the brain, as soon as something is no longer novel, it creates a pattern for it. It creates an understanding for it. So it doesn't constantly have to process what it is that's going on. And so novelty is what keeps our sensory nervous system alive. Now, if you're constantly engaging in your environment, it's constantly novel because it's constantly changing. If you're the constantly changes, putting, the wind changes, the ground uh, under yeah, changes. nothing is ever the same. Even Got if it. you're treading the same path every day, Got it. so Which it could and, be hard depending if it's raining. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, yeah. And, and if you put your awareness on different parts of your body as you go through the world as well, that that's changing, like because your body is in constant change. And so, what we have in traditional societies is a setup where 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 our nervous system is supported for optimal function. And so when we get into modern day living, what we have now is if you ask 
any adult that you know, I will safely say this, the majority of them, I would say perhaps 10% will fall outside this window, will be able to tell you exactly what they do and how they do it over a given week. Like they'll get up on Monday and maybe they'll go to the gym and then they'll go to go to work and then they'll eat this lunch and then they'll come home. There'll be like a predictable set of ways that they move their body. And most of the time they'll do that with headphones on or they'll do that with some form of distraction. So they're not even really present with what it is that they're doing in their environment. And so the brain has already recognized this is no longer novel. Like there's no new sensory information coming in through this. And so we get stuck in these sort of set patterns, which start to become predictable to the brain and it's not being stimulated in any way. And then as well, because of modern living, what happens as we enter our fight flight nervous system is the sensory system gets turned off. And so, and the reason for that is protective. So if someone punches me in the face, I don't want to feel all the feelings because that limits my ability to respond in the moment. And if I'm in conservation of energy mode, for instance, which is like collapse, essentially it's sort of hibernation mode for humans or it's the same for mammals. But yeah, exactly. You just like you, your, your sensory system is not what's feeling into the world. You're, you're essentially in, in literally introverted at that moment in time. And so by design, we're not supposed to live in our sensory, our sympathetic or fight flight nervous system. We're supposed to be like, flicking in and out of it. But now we have a lifestyle set up where people are in their their sympathetic nervous system and not coming out. They're not being stimulated to come out of it. So the sensory system is getting switched off. The brain no longer has anxiety that's the brain no longer has fresh information. And so it's just always erring on the side of caution and staying in the in the reflex system. And so now we have all of these pathologies and all of these behaviors that are so what do you do with your web-based business that helps people to bust out of this and get back to a more natural way of moving that can then bring them back to their parasympathetic? Can you explain how, how you help? Yeah, so it's, it's, it's not even bringing back to parasympathetic. It's just creating that accurate responsiveness. So not, nothing is good or bad. It's just like if you're supposed to be there, then you want to be there. And if you're not, you're not sort of thing. But we talk about being dominantly parasympathetic, which for me in my life situation, for instance, I'm not under physiological threat. So there's no need for me to be. Except for every time uh, you climb in the saddle, you just kid yourself that you're not. Yeah, yeah, true. (laughs) But, but, you know, more than 50% of the time I would want to be operating out of the parasympathetic. That might be different if I'm on the front line in Afghanistan, then it would be more appropriate for me to be operating for my sympathetic more than 50% of the time. But I use movement-based processes and a, a practice that really activates the sensory system. So it's all about re-engaging the sensory nerves, rehabituating the sensory nerves to send signals to the brain again. And when that happens, you start to release some of the patterns that have been held there in over different periods of time. And so essentially what, what I'm working with is a, a brain mapping or a body mapping process where we're updating the brain map because your brain map gets distorted when you are in sympathetic for a long period of time. I've probably complicated things now by introducing that, but basically just using movement to activate the sensory system. How do you show, and what movements are you showing people? Are you falling back in your yoga or are you doing other things? And how are you showing people these things? I don't do any yoga anymore. I don't do any yoga. I don't do any breath work anymore. I've completely changed my And And so if if I'm a member on this website, what yes. what are you showing me and how? Yeah. 
So there are a few different things. The movement practices themselves focus on specific body parts. So we'll go through like what's some examples. So last week we did like the talus bone, which is part of the ankle, and we'll do the heel next week and we'll do the shin and shoulder blades and ribs and we've done the rectus abdominis muscles. We'll do different developmental movement patterns. But basically it's based on the premise that the body moves differently in parasympathetic and sympathetic system. The way that we start to activate sensory nerves is to bring awareness. I work with like a two-point awareness process where we focus on two points in a specific part of the body and just observe what's happening. And that starts to activate the sensory system, which overall kicks back into the unconscious brain. And then you start to habituate these sensory feedback loops. But basically it's just like a movement practice that focuses on different body parts. So we're like mapping the body by going through different structural parts, noticing different points on the part of the body that we're focusing on with view to activating the sensory system in that area. And, and that overall starts to kick the brain back into a different mode of functioning. Okay. And then overall, by then going through these various different parts of the body, through these different types of observation and movement, you get to a sort of a hole at a certain point where you've sort of retrained the body and the brain to basically come to more functionality. Yeah. So if you think of it, um, yeah, yeah. The, we have something in our brain called place cells and grid cells and they're cells of location. So basically my brain is, has a map of everything that's in my body in relationship to each other. So for instance, it knows where my wrist is in relationship to my elbow cap and it knows where my right. knee is in relationship to my ankle. And it also knows and where all my organs at the end are. Of your hands. Yeah, yeah. It also knows where all my organs are and all of those sorts of things. So that's part of my sensory motor map that's in my in my brain. And when that sensory motor map is accurate, so when it's it's updated and the the brain has accurate information about the different location landmarks of the body, it's able to accurately place me in relationship to my environment. And so that is through my sensory system. I basically got a series of active sensory feedback loops that are feeling into the environment, giving my brain information so my brain can respond accurately. And when we start to get into fight flight more often than not, that brain map starts to get distorted. They can get distorted through paying attention to sensation too much. So how I feel, the sensation that's in my body, that's separate to location. And when we have a distorted sensory motor map, the sensory system gets switched off. And again, the brain's unable to accurately make decisions. And, and you experience this all the time when you're in a place of like high anxiety. It's like you're no longer responding accurately. Or you can see that in someone else. They just have this kind of complete discombobulated view of themselves in relationship to the world. And so you don't actually have to, for, for as long as the brain has a few, a few active sensory loops to go on, you can really start to change your experience of the world. And so we do that through this two-point process, which is in line with activating these place cells and grid cells, which is just an awareness process. And the other thing is everything that I talk about here might sound confusing. You don't need to know any of it in order for it to work. Like you don't need to know how it works in order for it to work. It's kind of like the horse boy stuff. Like if you experience it, it doesn't matter why or how, like it's just, it, it will work because there's a way that the body responds to the process that allows that to be the case. And it's the same here. Like my process is I love to understand things and there are other people that love to understand things. So I lay out these 
processes as to this is why it works. But the reality is if you come in and just do the practice, you can understand nothing and still get the benefits of it because it's just part of the physio- physiological process. Did you have a mentor similar to your mentor with yoga? Or your mentors yeah. with yoga? Who, who mentored you in this deep nervous system stuff? Because I, you know, I work a lot with the nervous system with regards to autism and that sort of thing, but I haven't dealt, I have, I have not dived into it as deeply as you have. And I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm fascinated by this. Who, who, who schooled you in this? What's the story? Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm still being schooled. I still have multiple schoolings. It's schoolings a week with it and have been now for the past few years. So I initially, Alicia Fajardo is my mentor. She works with holistic biomechanics. And Alicia Fajardo. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so she is my, my person basically that I refer to and talk to and have learned a huge amount of. And so when. How did you find talk- your way to her? At, was it again, seeking answers for your own pain or was no, it more just curiosity? I, I mean, I mean, that has been, uh, when we talk about the pain aspect, I've definitely, like, I'm completely pain-free now. That's been the, probably the last five years or so. And that's been through this work. So would you say yes. you're the, yes, this whole, this whole conversation we've had, which began with forms of physical and psychological and emotional and physical pain. Yes. Has been a sway, as you could say, I, Jane Pike, have experienced this in my body and brain. It's, mm-hmm. the shit works, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see it in my membership as well. But it's not an easy process. How did you? How did you encounter Felicia? Alicia, yeah, Alicia, I, um, sorry, yeah, yeah. I so Alicia Fertado, I got the yeah, yeah, yeah. So I let me just think. So my initial interest. So I started the work, I guess, from a much more mental skills perspective, like a top-down perspective, and that was about. Like mental strength, I guess, kind of like harnessing mental strength and like positive thinking and and mental toughness and all of those types of words, which make me throw up in my mouth a little bit now. But all of those types of words were were my interest to start with. And one of the things about those things is that you're always behind the eight ball, right? Like you can only change a thought to a positive thought after you've already had the negative thought, and, right. and so you're always kind of chasing your tail a little bit there. But the Interesting thing is that I realized the, that those skills and understandings had a shelf life as far as like, for some people they worked, it sort of depended on the start, the start point. And and I got to a stage myself where I was having like a meltdown in the arena one day that wasn't just in relationship to what was going on. It was more actually just a life circumstance at the time. This is at home on your own horse in New Zealand. Yeah. And I just remember thinking like. No, I was at a clinic, even worse. I was at a clinic with a public, with an audience, which is clinic for those for those non-horsey people does not mean she went to the doctors. It means <laughs> but uh, she should have at a, that a, moment. A public horse training event for some weird reason. We horsey people call them clinics. God knows why. And I've seen that yes, kind of, true. what do you mean you went to a clinic with your horse? Or they, they, they allowed mm-hmm. you to like tie it up outside or, and they, oh, yeah. yes, it's no, I didn't go to the doctor. Okay. So fine. Yeah. So you're at, you're at a horse training event. And, oh, yeah. and you're at, you're there as a horse trainer? No, I'm there as a student. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm there as a student. Yes. I have a meltdown. Um, I mean, I'm, I have an internal meltdown trying to hold it together. And, and I just, up because I think it was more the context of the situation. Okay. I had two young, very expressive horses, but that normally, normally wouldn't bother me. 
it was more just I think that expressive you know I had a yeah 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 but also just I guess I had a lot of respect for the trainer you know I really wanted to do a good job and I felt like I wasn't doing a good job and there was just I just put a lot of pressure on myself to be something other than what I was able to be in that moment and that was what precipitated the experience but afterwards it created a whole change because I was like well if I can't do this based on all the things I teach and I live and breathe this stuff then how can I expect someone else to do it but that perhaps isn't doing 20% of the work that I do or thinking about it the way that I think about it. How can I expect it to work? And so I had a crisis of sorts after that. And then I went on a whole different exploration, which led me in the first instance to somatic experiencing, which is a lot of the work that's based of Peter Levine's. And he does a lot of, you know, nervous system trauma-based work. And I did loads and loads of study and loads of different workshops with people who were his colleagues and or students. And the work that I'm teaching now was, Alicia was a guest speaker on one of those workshops. And I was there thinking, what is this? Like, this is so random. Like I just, I, and. A little bit like your, your, your reaction to the to the more therapeutic yoga after the hard yoga. Yeah, exactly. Like it was like, but there was a part of me which was super curious. And I think that was the intuitive part that just was like, keep going. You know, like I had the little applied it to yourself. You've found something. Yeah, you found something. You need to like investigate this further. And a lot of the questions that I had had that had very loose answers that weren't satisfying to me. You know, and I think I'm in a fortunate position in that because I'm teaching things, I'm not just finding out things from a personal perspective. Loose answers don't hold because I'm going to be questioned as well. (laughs) So it's like, you need to be able to tell me what's going on here. Otherwise, because I need to know, right? I need to know who this best suits, who this best fits. And And Alicia could give you these answers sort of suddenly. She's explaining it in a way that goes to the source inside the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Quick question. You say you don't do any yoga anymore or any breath works. Why not? Why not integrate the two? What, what, what makes you say, okay, well, I'm moving away. I've moved away from that now. Yeah. So one thing that I always encourage people to do is to, to investigate the lineage of whatever it is that they are engaging in as far as processes and not all, cause I will, you know, I don't want to ever paint the brush widely across everything but a lot of the lineages of yoga and the ones that I were I was practicing come from aesthetic aesthetic what's not it's not asceticism asceticism they come from asceticism removing yourself from the body removing yes yeah and and so and and a lot of meditation practices are for that as well right so like it's about moving towards enlightenment it's about moving towards mergence with the divine like in whatever way that manifests for you it is body denying system yeah and and it used to be used to be a aspiration to hear about like these advanced yogis quote unquote who would sit for 21 days and not have food not need to go to the toilet not need to drink not have any sort of earthly desires and you'd think wow that's amazing and now I think 
wow, that's dysfunctional. Like that's like <laughs> not normal for a body, right? And so I was starting to have a lot of different physical issues from yoga. Like, you know, it's very common for women to lose their period. It's very common for people to develop, to develop different body dysmorphic syndromes or disorders. It's very common. It's interesting because to... that isn't talked about. I, I, it's interesting you say it's very common because, I mean, I know so many people in the yoga world. I myself had, not for very long, but I had a, I had a, a pretty good Ashtanga yoga practice myself for a bit until I became a dad and um, then began to self-medicate with beer and that went out the window. But, at the, you know, you never heard any of the yoginis or any of these people say, oh, I lost my yeah. period or that. If they well, were, they I were was, certainly keeping it to themselves. In that, yeah. I was teaching in the upper echelons of it at one point and I'm watching people who are writing for Yoga Journal and I'm watching people who are like, on Gaia and I'm watching people that are like, you know, really at the top, top of the profession there. And I know them personally. And I know that their reality is different from what they're teaching. Like, and I'm like, this is just not right. Like this is not, something is really not right here. And so for me, you know, what I understand now about many of the practices is that they take people into collapse which is the point, right? Like you got, you're supposed to be at the end of your nervous system when you pass over, but the, the collapse feels better to a lot of people, A, because now sensation is absent in the body, which feels safer. Most people equate any sort of feeling or sensation in the body with a degree of danger. You feel more in control because now your conscious brain and your unconscious brain are more in alignment because again, you're not at war with your body. And so you feel like you have a semblance of control. And that's kind of the, the, the two things that are most stand out. And you, 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 you do lose like a desire because your body's just not in the place where it's robust enough to have it. Um, when you, when you, so is that the euphoria in collapse? This is interesting. Would that be Yeah, in the later of- stages of collapse. So like motor neurone disease, MS, a lot of those things are like the later stages of collapse. And a lot of the studies they've done with people show those people to be very happy because the, the, the self-protective mechanism of the body when it is in that advanced stage of nervous system, I don't want to say degradation because that's not the right word, but just of, of where it's sitting, is to actually like create a degree of euphoria as a hand-holding mechanism, basically. Pump, um, you, full of, pump you full of yes. hormones to take you yeah. into a, a yeah. smooth transition. Yeah. Is that, is that, well, is like that the calm that a wildebeest has, you know, when they're, Looking at yes. the wild dogs pulling exactly. their guts They've out. They've gone and they have the, they have the lovely benignly. thoughts and the hallucinations. Uh, and and the, they're not feeling yeah. that, okay, maybe yeah. DMT being produced in the pineal gland. Yeah. Well, like the, the thing okay. about the nervous system is it is a, it is designed to lead you in the best way possible towards death. Like if right. you think about it. I, I can see that. I, I see what you're Which saying. Is, like the body's trying to work for to... you. Right. Yeah, but it's only okay. supposed to happen at like six for six weeks, right when you're old. But now we're stuck in like forty years in in the collapse stage, you know, for for, for some people. And so there's there's this this wear and tear that happens. But okay. yeah, and you know, for me with the yoga as well. And I, oh, I, I don't know. I think I can speak for a wider audience when I say this, in that like aside from the body denial. That idea of like oneness with consciousness is also somewhat of a relief for a lot of people who have 
you know, cultural expectations and sometimes not great experiences around sex and relationship and intimacy. And so it's a ticket out of that, right? Like it's it takes it's you away ticket. from the body. And yeah, it's, it's a ticket out of that to, to, to think, okay, well, I don't, I just don't even have to deal with that now. I can be like, I can just be little old me merging with the universal consciousness and I get to deny everything that feels uncomfortable in my body. I get to deny everything that feels uncomfortable emotionally. I get to deny, deny, deny and just move towards this. And because actually being in a body affirming, life affirming practice is freaking hard, right? right. Because then you have to be in life and life is right, hard right, sometimes. Right. I get so it. I get it. So if you're, it but if you're be, a bum. You know, dealing with your kid, you, you haven't got that option, right? You've got to, you've got to get up, you've got to deal with your kids, you've got to have these relationships, you've got to, you've got to deal yeah. with life well, with the sensory system, with other people's sensory systems. Well, the, the Mohans would say that this is not a practice for family aged people. Okay. Because yeah. you have responsibilities. This is the practice for when you get to be, you know, older. So if you, if you are a mum or a dad going through what mums and dads go through, then and you are firmly stuck in the... Then the asana part of the yoga yeah. journey is your emphasis at that point, the posture okay. part. But it becomes less and less about posture. And then it becomes more and more about emergence with the divine. And right. one point but, of but, focus. Uh, but with your, with your work then, if I'm me, dad, I'm dad, you know, dealing with dad stuff. I'll be up early tomorrow morning dealing with dad stuff. There is no choice but to deal with relationships. There is no choice but to... Yes. Then... Yeah. then Delving into my nervous system can help me to respond appropriately to what's in front of me. Yeah, absolutely. It okay. just depends what, what give you me want. Tools. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's just about like now I have the capacity to show up and meet what I need to show up for in a way that's real. Okay. And some people will opt out of that, by the way. Some people will opt out of that because it, bring, it brings a degree of discomfort to be able to meet what's real. Sometimes you recognize your situation needs to change or your relationship needs to change or you're not actually doing something that fulfills you or this wasn't the choice that you would have liked to have made. And so you have to meet that. You have to meet that. And, and that takes resilience. That takes courage. That takes, you know, a lot of what we're fed in the world at the moment. No, I'm going to go to a cave and just meditate. Thanks very much. Really? Yeah. <laughs> but really, you can see that's an attractive option, yeah, right? Like yeah, meeting the reality is not necessarily an attractive option, but I, I decided that like, I would rather meet the reality in the full discomfort than be in the delusion. So. And was it in that meeting of the reality, would you say that your pain began to dissipate? Yeah. So the body, the way the body leverages movement is different from sympathetic, so different from the fight flight system to the parasympathetic. So when I'm looking to create movement in the fight flight system, it's my lower back and my neck that leverage the movement. The, the lower back is what is fueling movement in the lower part of the body and the neck fuels the movement of the shoulder girdle. So moving in and out of the tube. And I think one of the missing pieces of information out there is that the well, I've just lost my train of thought, is that when we, when we think about movement patterns, your movement is either rooted in your sympathetic nervous system or it's rooted in your parasympathetic nervous system. And so 
the movement patterns themselves are the way that your body creates movement is basically a product of where your nervous system is sitting. And so for me, I was stuck in a dominant mode of functioning. If you think about it like that, like a dominantly sympathetic or fight flight mode of functioning. And the way that my body was achieving everyday activities, like walking around, going up and down steps, like getting up and down off the couch was a fight flight action. The dominant mode of functioning was fight flight. And so even if my emotional framework didn't warrant a fight flight response, the way that my movement was dominantly geared was in the fight flight system. So I was just firing off my nervous system every time I moved around. So overall, because my lumbar spine is working so hard and my cervical spine is working so hard from such an early age, and we tend to be gifted the nervous system of our mothers and our primary caregivers, I was just creating so much compression and leverage in my body that it was resulting in chronic pain. And so when I changed the underlying nervous system state and changed the way that my body was leveraging movement, I don't get the pain anymore. Was that the aha moment? Like at what, point did, at what point did you realize, oh my gosh, this is happening? I instantly changed. So when I got, when I had a couple of questions answered that I hadn't had answered for a long time, I was like, shit. Okay. Basically, that was my best response because it's like, I've built this body of work on all of this study I've done over the last 20 years. And now I'm sitting here on a Zoom call realizing that actually I've got some stuff wrong. And so I am going to completely redo my program from the ground up. And that's what I did. And I told people, I was like, so you know how you've been working with me for like a really long time and we've been doing this stuff. Oh, really? I and you had to go to, by now you've got the online memberships and all that. You had to go oh, back yeah, yeah. and say, oh, by the way, no, Shrat, did, that was all bollocks. I, I um, that was all shite. Now whole, we have to. Yeah. Wow. That's brave. I didn't, think, I didn't think it was all shite, but I was like, I, I've got some I've got some answers here to holes that have been in the program and we're going to take it from the ground up and I'm going to change it. So you've got six months to go through what I've got here. And in six months time, we're wiping it and starting again. Was it when you went through that kind of reboot? So you, you, by this time, you've actually established a a successful online business, which presumably is getting results and helping people. Otherwise people. Yes, it is. Right, right. So did you have, did you have some confusion with people saying, well, hold on, Jay. It's actually working for me. Why should I, why do I need to do this other stuff? Yeah, there are definitely people that were a little cross with me. Not many. I think that what I, I guess, I don't know, maybe people just didn't tell me. That's Uh another thing. The people that talked to me were very nice, but I guess one of the things that I have. How long ago was this? Would you say that you you said, okay. uh, So probably two or three years ago that I really changed the whole foundation. Yeah, quite recently. Yeah. And I, I took people, I gave people a chance. Of course, they didn't have to stay with me. And it was quite scary because yeah, I bet. You know, I'm the breadwinner and I've created this successful thing. And now it's just so intolerable to me to not be in alignment with what I teach. I just could, once I knew something different and I was practicing something different, I'm like, I can't teach people any different to what I'm doing. Like I, that's just, just, so there was no decision. Like it well, was. I guess you were inviting them to go along with the evolution. But, no, yes. but nonetheless, that is, that is a brave step yes. for everybody would, as you said, yeah. you know, some of the yoga people perhaps that you met were walking yeah. one talking, walking yeah. one walking. And talking. some things that I teach now are a complete 180 from what I was doing before. 
And so, but I can say why. And and I think one of the advantages maybe that I have within my membership is that, I don't know if this is an advantage or not, I've always been really honest. Like I'm just, I, I, I really see myself as adventuring with these, this group of incredible people and I don't discount their opinion or their thoughts or it's not like my way or the highway. It's just like, this is, this is information, right? And one of the things that I've really learned about teaching and I attempt to practice in life to varying with varying degrees of success is that in order to be honest, you have to be willing to lose. So I was willing for everyone to leave me. I had to be willing for everyone to leave me in order to be able to present something new, because if I wasn't willing for people to leave, I wouldn't have done it. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to lay it all on the table. And I don't think hardly anyone left. Like, and then it took a while. There was a transition, but I'd already been practicing for a good period of time before I started teaching it. Because of course there's a, and that was a really annoying part of the practice as well, because coming from someone who's like, okay, give me the book, give me all the shit. I'm going to sit down for a weekend and by Monday I'm going to have this nailed and then I'll teach it. It, it wasn't something that I could think my way through. This was a, an unconscious, like I had to have a, a resonance in my body and understanding in my body of the process before I could teach it. And so that required some practice on my part. And then I just said, right, okay, July, we're changing. You've got this amount of time. And I started to like cross-pollinate conversations. So to bring in the material in conversation before we taught it and and then and then it took a while for people to get into and uh, yeah. So so back to the where we began, which is what this whole podcast is about, which is about self-actualization of people, led self-actualized lives, or and all of these self-actualized lives. From the outside, observing you, you appear to be self-actualizing. What I mean by that is you began with a problem to fix and a quest to go on. Some of it unconscious, some of it conscious. And then there were multiple reboots where every time, this is just sort of observing the story from the outside, every time you had sort of achieved a certain thing in a certain area, whether it was being a good girl at school, whether it was the human rights work, whether it was getting a, a mastery of this certain aspect of yoga and then saying, actually, no, it's, it's this aspect of yoga. And then saying, no, actually, I'm going back, I'm going to work in retail, but I'm going to, I'm going to write and I'm going to build back. And, what a confused individual. And meanwhile, I'm going to keep this writing thing going parallel. I've achieved a certain mastery at sort of showing as a teen and young adult, but now moving away from that, I'm going to move into this other aspect of horsemanship. You haven't really touched on that much, but I'd like to come back and do that in, a, in the next podcast. What, what, what emerges is a picture of growth where it's almost like you see, you know, from seedling to sapling to, I'm not suggesting that you're a big, mature, wide tree, but you know what I mean, you know, uh, a mighty, (laughs) mighty, but you know, that this maturing process and is, so it it brings into my mind is is self, is self-actualization in fact to a large degree, maturing and not maturing mean, you know, you use growing up, God forbid any of us ever do that. And I wonder if the mighty oak, you know, considers itself to be grown up where it says, actually, I still want to be a, I still want to be a big grown up tree one day. 
even though I'm now a hundred foot tall and you know, is that what goes through trees minds? But the, it, it's really interesting to see, you know, we could, I'd like to come back this. I think that every, a lot of listeners will have questions like, well, how did you build the business and how did you, you know, what is the secret of success for an online thing? And I, and, and I, I'd like to invite people to send those questions and we'll have Jane back. Gifting your spleen to the universe. That's right. And, and Jane will explain these things to you and we will have another podcast in which you will send these very natural questions and, and Jane will tell you how to make billions on the internet. But that's not what you set out to do. That's, that's the interesting thing to me. You didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to become this super successful online business showing people how to get back to their nervous systems in a way that's going to improve their lives. It evolved out of a desire to share and write about that, which you knew, which you need to be helpful. And then from there, you learned some online business skills, which again, yes, we, I, I, I think we should have you back and it'd be great to hear how you did that because I think it's useful for a lot of people, but nonetheless, that doesn't seem to be in the primary motivation. It seems that the primary motivation was simply the acquisition sharing of this knowledge. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, totally. I just had a, an energy to do that. Mm. Yeah. That was, it's a seeking energy as well. Like it's, I talk about intellectual energy. I don't know if that's the right word, but like, I love to be considering and seeking and finding information and, and sharing information. For me, that was like a very rewarding process. It was to, to do that and to share and to find people finding that useful. And like I said, it was, I mean, it was a couple of years before I even considered that that was a, anything, there was anything financially viable in that. I mean, that was kind of a shock to even consider that someone would find me useful in a way that they would actually want to pay me. And that wasn't like a, a thought in the beginning. And then, you know, the second thing out of that, just from a business perspective, because I kind of well, without downplaying other people's experiences, I sort of chuckle to myself sometimes when people will email me and they're like, now, I've been doing this thing for three months now and I haven't made money. I was like, I worked for five years without making any money. Like it's like without even, it's just, you know, this kind of, I think the, the internet breed like an instant idea of being able to financially translate something into dollars, you know? And so not to say that that's going to be other people's experience, but just to it is, it is sort of difficult to, yeah, to, to put a, I've forgotten the question that you asked me. I feel like I'm well, it, 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 it's about self-actualization. And, and so it, what, what, what comes to mind, maybe I'll pose this question slightly differently. Would you say that actually one of the keys to self-actualization is putting what you do in service? Yeah. And just being unemployable. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm completely unemployable. Like the idea of working for someone else is so unacceptable to me that like I, I just, I really loathe, and I mean this, I, I really loathe having my schedule dictated by someone else. Like the thought of having to get up and go, I just, I actually can't think of anything worse. Like I love to be able to go and I work really hard, actually, but I decide. Actually, I'm yourself, Jane, your, your schedule is completely dictated by your kids. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They are your bosses, but yeah. That's true. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, which is why I've struggled so much. <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah. yeah. But it, it seems to me too that that's been the other, that's been the other long, you know, concurrent, you know, thread through the story is that there's been an element of service at each step. Oh, totally. Yeah. And that without that, I wonder if one can self-actualize because without that, you know, it's, it's interesting. Like is somebody who makes an awful lot of money, but without an element of service, without an element of sharing, without an element, is that self-actualization? You know, that's, that's a question for the listeners. You know, I wonder, but it seems to me that the, you know, fulfillment must come with a feeling of satisfaction that you can't just get from dopamine. Of, Haha, I got these zeros in my bank account. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's got to come know, from something richer. Deeper. Well, I think my work, everything about my work is there's a, it's reciprocal in nature. Mm-hmm. Like it's a benefit in the best possible way from my work. I benefit from it, not only in knowledge, and I get to share that knowledge, which if anyone has ever taught anything, you know that you really have to know something to teach it because that starts to show up what you don't know when you start to explain it to someone else. So there's a, you know, I've always launched myself into sharing knowledge, which has forced me to really understand what it is that I'm sharing because that process of like, you know, learn, do, teach. I, I, I activate very quickly, but beyond that, I, I have an incredible community of people that I work with and I include my horses within that. And they save me many times. They save me, you know, I, on tough days or hard days that we all have, I, I still show up and I feel different after I've taught than I do at the beginning. And that's because it's not just me, right? Like it's an energetic exchange and I feel equally valued and hopefully they feel valued and loved and appreciated and respected as part of the process as well. And I think that that's, you know, that kind of experience is not something that you would ever gain by just selling a product. For me, it's, you know, there's a couple of questions that I get asked, which is like, how do I get to do what you're doing? And I'm like, I've got no idea because so much of what I'm doing has been informed by my life experience. It's not so much just about like, sure, you can learn these things, you can study with these people and you can do that, but it's not quite just that. So I don't know, you kind of, you have to do you, which is like the, you know, a a bit of a hard statement to say, but as well, you know, there's also a idea of passive income and of like floating off on the island and that sort of thing. And on the one hand, some days that sounds very, very appealing. But actually, ultimately, when it comes down to it, I'm not really interested in just like the, the, the success in whatever way that has manifested, I believe, comes through the connection. Having uh, seen your joyride community in action, I was lucky enough to meet some of them. I can definitely attest to that it seems an unusually mutually supportive yeah, incredible. like it, it, yeah. it's not like you know someone someone going online to do multi-level marketing or something like that. not necessarily anything wrong with that but you know you know what you know why you're getting into that i, mean, I, I want to go in i want to sell these products in order to make money so i get free and 
But really what people are saying, I feel, I feel when they're going into the business, yes, I want to be free. I feel that the money will make me free. You have achieved that freedom and to a large degree that it, that is also financial money does give one these choices. Obviously you didn't start that, but I do wonder if those who are trying to go into an online business like yours with the idea of making money as the primary goal, even if they were to achieve that, would they feel self-actualized? Would they feel? I, I wonder if that's enough for what it takes, you know, for the longevity. I wonder if that's enough because it's. It's a lot of work, not to say that people are work shy. It's a, definitely a lot of work. Like I, I work a lot. <laughs> and so you're doing live I, sessions with people all the time on, on, on. Yeah. All the time. And then making content. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're on, on the daily most for the most part. And then, you know, and there's, right. yeah, there's lots of other things that come into it, but and I mean, maybe it's enough, maybe it's enough to keep going, but for me. I mean, I don't even know how much money I earn. I've got no idea. I mean, I don't mean that to sound like, I don't even know how much money I earn. Like I have enough to like, but, but I don't, I don't look at the, yeah. I don't, it's not the, keep the score. No. And I guess that's a privilege because there must be enough coming in to not have to keep score to know that I can pay the bills each month, which is a thing. But yeah, it's not like, Ooh, like it's, it's, it's just like, I would keep doing it even if 10 people five people. Yeah, I, I don't know what else I would do. Like I, if someone said to me, you know, and, and occasionally you get used to this question, like, what would you do if you won the lottery? It's like, well, actually I'd, I'd be doing the same thing. I, I would be doing the same thing. I'd probably have an indoor arena. <laughs> <laughs> and there would be a few tweets, but, but you know, as far as like where my life energy is being invested, I would be doing the same thing just with like, a really, really freaking nice saddle or something else like that. But I, absolutely. Like I'm not going to deny things, but yeah, yeah. 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 But you, you're, you're doing that, which you love. Yeah. Well, with that, I mean, we, we're at two and a half hours here and cool. there's, there's more that we could go into. And I think, so one of the, the things that I promised the, the, the literary library listeners is that we then will have each person back to answer the question. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Well, <laughs> Throw in. So would you would you would you consent to come back and absolutely so, yes. yeah so let's have them let's send in your questions to Jane she's a wealth of knowledge it can be on the how did you do it it can be on the how on the what do you do it could be on the tell me more about that parasympathetic and sympathetic they tell me more about those body maps Jane turned me onto a book is it the body has a mind of its own yeah, yeah. about body maps and brain maps which even though I thought I knew quite a lot about the nervous system, I realized I didn't. And it was fascinating. And there's much, much, much more to learn. And I think next time we come back, Jane, I want to talk to you in more detail about that because now we've sort of had your story. I'd like to go into more depth about this. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions on anything. Like there's really no... Because it's helpful. I, I, th I think a lot of us, walk around in a state of anxiety and we don't even know why, you know, I, I think, I think that that's one of the, one of the symptoms of the modern age. Hold on. You know, my life's good. I've got a nice job. Yeah. I, you know, I've got enough to eat, blah, blah, blah. Why, why do I feel so shit? Yeah. And I think that this is a question at the heart of 
our uh, societal experience at the moment. We've never had it so good, really, as a species, and yet we seem to have never been quite so unhappy. Yeah. Why And I think that? as well, like one of the platforms that's not as openly or often discussed in this, I doubt it goes outside what you want to talk about here, but maybe it does, but I'll throw it in here and we can always talk about it somewhere else as well. It's just like that, you know, you and me have done those vitality workshops together as well and like discussed what that means or what that looks like to live in a vital way. And um, to me, the essence of what I was attempting to escape from, I think, with a lot of the yoga practices, just me personally, like, again, I don't want to paint a brush, but like, is really common for people's experiences, you know, like the, the, the struggles that we have with like ourselves, our relationship to ourselves, our relationship to others, our relationship to intimacy, our relationship to sexual expression, our relationship to passion, all of those things, like, really or the difficult we separate them yeah we separate them but then they're, they're, they're not separate and yet it's still kind of a little bit taboo when we talk about this type of these types of conversations or just not as openly discussed or talked about and so that's really interesting to me as well I mean I get lots of get lots of it's not quite the right word I, I have the honor of working with a lot of women in my program that are in their 70s or in their 60s and they got married very young and it's like they have one foot in a time where women's rights and expectations were very different and another foot in this modern era where they recognize and see all of these different opportunities around them and and perhaps they've changed and their husband hasn't or like you know and how to negotiate that all of the when we talk about self-actualization and I feel like there's a lot of people in this like transition point both in time and both physiologically and both mentally and emotionally, that means that they're kind of a little bit at war with themselves. And yeah, that, that feeling of a yeah. sort of inner schizophrenia almost. Yeah, it's just a really interesting point. I just wanted to throw that in there alongside the nervous system stuff and alongside the other stuff because it's interesting. Well, if you so, listeners, if you're if you're if you got that, you've got that inner conflict, send us in the questions. What do I do about it? Please, Jay, Jay will sort you out. Tell, tell us how people can contact you and where they can find you. Well, you can send love. You can just sit there and send really good vibes all the way <laughs> and it'll be happily received. But if you do want to directly contact me, you can jump on my website. Confidentwriter.online is the best place to find me. And I'm on, on the socials as well. Or you can email me, jane at confidentwriter.online. Jane will, at confidentwriter.online. Yeah, and I will merrily reply. Yeah, give me a few days. Sometimes I'm a little behind on emails, <laughs> but it's not personal. <laughs> yeah, so that, that would be amazing to hear from people. Okay. Well, then I can't wait till we can have you back. Jane, thanks so much for That's a pleasure. gracing us with your story and your wisdom. Me. For those of you who want to hear more, we'll be having Jane back to hear our other podcast on equine assisted interventions equine assisted world go to us at longridehome.com and if you're interested in the work we do with autism the brain and all the other stuff ls.co neutralzoningsystems.co send you your questions to jane but do bother with me to send the questions so that i can ask them of jane so please send the questions say i've got these questions for jane how do you do it? Blah, blah, blah. 
and then we can have her back and she can tell her. All right, Jane, thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com, to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.